Hi everyone, and welcome to our Friday podcast series. My name is Jan Orford, and I'll once again be your host. Today's podcast will look at how diabetes educators can assist people with type 2 diabetes manage, manage ongoing weight control. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Catherine Backus. Dr. Backus is a bariatric medical practitioner at Alivia Medical Weight Loss. She's a SCOPE certified obesity doctor who has a passion for assisting people in managing their weight and achieve better health. Hi, Catherine. Welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Hi, Jan. Thank you for having me and it's a pleasure to be with you today too. I'm sure also that our listeners will gain a great deal from uh, hearing you talk about your experience and your expertise in this topic. I'd like to ask you before we start, can you briefly tell us a little bit about how you became involved in this field of medicine? Sure. Well, as a GP who sees many patients, I guess we figured out the advice of eat less and move more. It just doesn't work. And there's, I suppose there's been frustrations on both the GP and the patient side. I guess as GPs, we know that many any health conditions can be improved or even resolved with weight loss. And we're talking about things like diabetes, reflux, ischemic heart disease, polycystic ovaries, people who have um, osteoarthritis, and even people who are um, struggling to get pregnant. And then we've got our patients who they're seeking advice from us about what's effective um, weight loss strategies. And it's really difficult to kind of give them some really effective, um, comprehensive advice advice at the end of a 15-minute consultation. So with that in mind, I, I went and sought out some information from um, some respected people in this field. So I um, spent some time at the Monash Bariatric Service with Dr. Sharon Marks and also a bit of time with Professor Joe Proieto, who's a world-renowned obesity researcher and head of the Austin Weight Management Clinic. And through that research and spending time with these people, I've put together a dedicated weight loss program that's based around the evidence on effective treatments for weight loss. And I think we can safely say it's a growing problem, if you pardon my pun. Yeah. Uh, Catherine, would you mind outlining for me some of the factors that determine a person's weight and body shape, please? Of course. Well, we know now that weight is largely determined by genetics. In fact, um, this accounts for 40 to 70% of the eventual weight that we will achieve. And there were some studies done by a group, Stunkhard et al. in 1990. And what they did is they compared some identical twins that were reared together or reared apart. And they actually found that there was a really strong correlation between those twins' weights. So even twins that had never met each other in their entire life, their weights were very strongly correlated with each other. So this tells us that there is a strong genetic contribution to our weight. In addition, there was another study looking at um, a child who was adopted um, and the child's weight strongly correlated with their biological family's weight rather than the adopted parent's weight. So again, if this was a, um, a lifestyle disease, we'd expect that it would be more related to their um, adopted environment that they're in, but it doesn't. It comes down to genetics that we inherit from our family. And our genes determine things like our, our set point of weight and even the way that we carry body weight as well, um, whether it's upper body um, or lower body. So there's a bit of a theory going around called set point 
point theory. And this tells us that um, each person will tr tend to hover around a certain weight. And if we tr try and lose weight, you know, our body will try to um, resist that and, and have our weight go back up again. Um, and similarly, if we put on a bit of weight, our body will try and get it down, but the, the brake pedal is not so strong, you would say. In addition, of course, there's lifestyle factors as well. So overwhelmingly, people believe that weight is only lifestyle, and that's not true. But we do acknowledge that there is, um, you know, a contribution. Of course, how much we exercise, um, what we're eating will contribute to our body weight as well. But we can't simply just adjust our lifestyle in the hope that the, the weight will fall off. Um, and we need to, I guess, tackle both of these issues, both genetics um, and our lifestyle. So I look at weight um, management more like a chronic medical condition. It's much like diabetes. There are some people for whom there'll be a strong genetic predisposition um, and their lifestyle seems pretty good. And for others, there's some definite room for improvement with their lifestyle and we need to focus on um, improving diet and exercise and, and those sorts of things. Thanks, Catherine. I'm just wondering if you'd be able to give our members a, a very brief overview of how our body weight is regulated, please. Well, our body weight is actually regulated in a part of our brain called the hypothalamus. And I like to think of this part of the brain a bit like the control centre of a ship. It likes to keep everything steady, including our weight. And there are some important hormones that are involved in appetite regulation. So, for example, we have um, ghrelin, and I like to think of ghrelin as the, the growling ghrelin. It's a, a hormone made in our stomach and you might be familiar with this hormone because it kicks in about three hours after you've finished a meal and your um, stomach is starting to empty and, um, and it responds to low blood sugar levels and it will tell your brain that you're running out of food and it's time to um, go get some more food. And then we've got other hormones that um, when we do have a meal, we get a, a cascade of hormones and peptides that are, that are released from the intestines, from the, from the gut, from the pancreas, the small and large intestine, and even from our fat cells um, that signal to the brain that we are becoming full, that we have enough um, energy stores. So it's really a, a bit of a communication between our brain and our gut that helps um, to regulate our body weight. And interestingly, there, um, there was a study shown by Sumitra in um, 2011, and it showed that after we lose weight, they, they looked at about 50 patients who lost 13 and a half kilos over 10 weeks. There were some persistent changes in these hormones that helped to, I guess, regulate our body weight and get it back up again, unfortunately. So they showed that one year after weight loss, there were higher levels um, of hunger and lower levels about those satiety hormones, all designed to, to get us back up to that set point of weight that we talked about earlier. So Catherine, many diabetes educators, people with diabetes and doctors struggle with the notion of weight control and how to maintain a healthy weight range. Are you able to provide our listeners with some strategies or tips that they can use when counselling and educating people with type 2 diabetes about weight loss? Absolutely. So as I said, I think we need to look at managing weight much like any other condition that we manage, such as diabetes, blood pressure or asthma. We really need a non-judgmental approach um, and it's important that we look at this idea of managing weight with a bit of a long-term game plan. Um, so lifestyle advice is important, um, medication, surgery might be options and I guess we look at increasing intervention for increasing weight and associate, associated comorbidities. So someone who might be five or 
10 kilos overweight, you know, you'd have a very different approach to them compared to someone who, you know, might be 100 kilos over their um, ideal body weight. Um, and so first of all, I would, I would suggest that you do talk about lifestyle factors. They are, they are still important. We want to encourage people to be physically active, to be on the go and and moving really a lot of incidental activity. Um, I don't. I tell my patients you don't need to be a gym junkie to lose weight. It's really about just getting active and getting moving. Um, we need to address psychological factors as well, whether there's um, comfort eating associated with anxiety, depression, or stress. And you know, give some dietary advice. And I'm sure all your diabetes educators would be really well placed to provide some of that dietary advice about how to um, encourage weight loss and looking at you know alcohol intake as well. I guess when it comes to dietary strategies, there's some really good evidence um, around um, very low energy diets or, or meal replacements. And, and these prove to be quite a good strategy for both weight loss and glycemic control. So what um, they did a study um, in 2014, Purcell et al. And what they did was they compared a group of patients who went on a very low energy diet of roughly 800 calories a day. And they compared that to another group of patients who just had a reduction in their overall calories by 500 calories a day. So they might still be on say 1500 calories. And it was interesting to note that for patients who went on to a very low energy diet, there was only a, about a 3% dropout rate with this group and 80% of patients were able to achieve their um, weight loss versus a reduced energy diet where only 50% were able to achieve um, their weight loss. So the, there's two main reasons why a very low energy diet works. Number one is because patients actually get really good weight loss with it. So they're motivated um, to keep going. And the most important reason is because those patients were actually on a, a low carb diet and it, and it produced some ketosis, which really helped them with some appetite suppression. So very low energy diets are a really good strategy for, for helping patients to lose weight. And one of the things that we notice is that glycemic control is one of the very first biological markers to improve on a very low energy diet, which would be of benefit to our um, patients with diabetes. But we have to be, you know, we have to have caution with them, assess them properly. And, and because some of them may need a reduction in some of their insulin or sulfonylureas um, if we're popping them onto a low-carb diet. Alternatively, you might um, talk with your patients about just trying a, a low-carbohydrate diet, which will be just reduced in energy. And that can be a good alternative. But to be honest, there's many, many ways to lose weight, whether we're looking at, you know, intermittent fasting, such as 5-2 or even which is a low energy diet on two days a week and a normal diet on the other days, or even there's some good evidence for 16-8 intermittent fasting, which is only eating for eight hours a day and fasting for the other 16. So perhaps eating between 12 midday and 8 p.m. at night. But then there's low carb and paleo and, and there's so many different dietary options out there and there are many ways to skin a cat. Um, and there was a study done in 2009 actually that showed it really doesn't matter what macronutrient is um i guess predominates in a diet whether it's low fat or low carb or high protein that's not so important as there being a calorie deficit so whatever suits the patient's lifestyle and works in um with their other health issues would be i guess the way to go it's individualized thanks catherine I guess the other problem that vexes many of us is that many people who struggle with weight control also fail to maintain weight loss in the long run. And I wonder if you could suggest to us why this is so, but also what strategies can be adopted to assist people to maintain their weight loss? 
Yes, certainly, Jan. Um, as I mentioned before, there was a study done um, in 2011 which told us why it's such a struggle to get the weight off and to keep it off. And it's because it comes back to our, our caveman ancestors. We've developed these hormones in our body to make sure that we survive. So hunger is such a, a primal drive and it's, it's hard to overcome that primal drive just with willpower. So we've got increased hunger and decreased levels of fullness that occur after we've lost weight. The other change that happens is our body gets a bit smart with how much energy is expended and we conserve another 300 calories per day after we've lost weight. And these three hormonal changes are, are all designed to get us back up to that set point of weight that we talked about before. So I guess it's kind of expected that patients um, put weight back on after losing it because of those um, hormonal shifts that occur. But some people do keep weight off um, and the National Weight Registry um, in the United States looked at the um, characteristics of these um, patients and typically they, they stick to a low calorie diet lifelong. Um, they're, they're consistent exercises. And the other important thing which could be of benefit to your or, um, patients or recommending recommending to your patients is regular weighing. Um, you know, people who weigh themselves, you know, two to three times a week um, will actually be able to get on top of any weight gain early and, and do something about it rather than waiting until five or 10 kilos have gone back on. So lifestyle change is important. We know that. But for people who've got significant amount of weight to lose or have really done the weight loss um, gain cycle, many, many times, they may, they may need some medication to assist with um, their appetite control and increasing their, their um, fullness. So that's what we were talking about before with those hormonal changes. If we can help to um, put a stronger brake pedal on and assist patients with satiety or, or fullness, then they're less likely to overeat um, when those hormone changes kick in. So as for diabetes educators, I guess you can really assist your patients with giving them some nutritional and, and lifestyle advice. You might discuss um, the benefits of low carbohydrate diets, but be careful if they're on insulin and sulfonylureas. You might in encourage a medication review with them with their doctor and, and say, okay, if we are on some of those you know medications that might promote weight gain, such as insulin and sulfonylureas, are there other alternatives that we could use instead? Because many of the diabetes medications can assist with satiety. And, and actually it helped with weight loss, which we'll talk about in a minute. And you might suggest to your patients just to be doing those regular weigh-ins two or three times a week so you can really um, track what you're doing. It's much like tracking your blood sugar levels as well. If you don't know what they are, you can't do anything about it. And I would say really try and have an attitude of, of assist and no blame because um, patients um, aren't trying to put on weight <laughs> and they it is such a struggle and we need to really assist them acknowledging the strong um, biological drivers behind weight as well. Thanks for that Catherine. You mentioned briefly the, the diabetic age and so I wonder if you could um, outline for us some of the ones that I guess are often prescribed to assist with this weight loss process. For sure, and I'm sure your diabetes educators are, are well aware of um, these drugs, but just to mention the ones that are favourable for weight loss, um, we've got exanatide, um, which is Bieta, or the weekly injection of Bigerium. Um, there's a newer medication, Loragulatide, which is, um, Victoza is the one that's licensed for use for diabetes, but the exact same medication um, is also called Saxenda, and that's licensed for weight loss. We've also got the combination of um, metformin and DPP-4 inhibitors such as, you know, Janumet XR. That 
really does help patients with um, improved satiety, um, which help can help them to not eat as much. And even things like um, empiflucosin or Jardians, which due to the um, excretion of glucose can lead to a, a 300 calorie per day deficit, which can help with weight loss as well. Of the other medications we have available to assist with weight loss, as I mentioned, Saxenda is one of them that's licensed for use, or we've got um, Duramine, and that's an older drug, but it's, it is registered for weight loss in the short term only roughly three months um, or we sometimes use topiramate which is used for epilepsy and migraine these two um, but people who were on it also lost a lot of weight it works on the central um, appetite control mechanism to to reduce hunger drugs have been proven to be effective in fact in the united states they are offered um, a combination drug duramine and topiramate um, which is probably coming out to australia in the next year or so and they've got safety data now on that medication out to two years so we've got medications that can assist with making us feel full we've got medications such as duramine that helps to suppress hunger but we'd also need to be mindful of our diabetics. I mean, some of them will need to be on insulin and sulfonylureas, but if we could try and look at ways to reduce that or look at other alternatives, um, that would be very beneficial. And your diabetes educators are probably aware of this, but in fact, there was a, the International Diabetes Federation got together and put out some recommendations on the role of bariatric surgery. And that's now recommended as first line, line treatment for diabetic patients who've got a, um, a BMI above 35 um, or pe for people who have a BMI above 40 and no diabetes. And it was, it's been shown um, many times that, that bariatric surgery can be a really effective treatment for um, glycemic control and even the reversal of type 2 um, diabetes. Thanks, Catherine. Now, we've obviously covered quite a lot of information, but I wonder if before we conclude this session, you had perhaps three take-home messages for our members. I guess the, the take-home messages that I would, um, would be saying to your members there is that just remember body weight is centrally regulated and we often say that lifestyle is the reason why people lose or put on weight, but in fact our brain and our gut have a really strong um, role in, in how body weight is regulated. And we need some mechanisms to overcome these physiological adaptations that occur with weight loss. I would also say that very low energy diets can be an effective weight loss tool. Um, so have a look at that for your patients. And also think about um, what medications the patient is on that might be promoting weight gain. And um, are there some other medications that can be used to help your patient with increasing satiety so that make, that way we can make weight maintenance a more achievable goal. Catherine, thank you once again. And I'm sure that this podcast has inspired our members to start to think about working towards expanding their skills in this area. And thank you to the, you, the members, for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And please take time to download some of the valuable references that Catherine's provided on our LMS site. And you can also upload any questions you might like Catherine to address in the future. Thank you once again, Catherine. And we'll see you all in the next fortnight. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. It's been great to be with you today. <laughs>